Hello. Welcome to We're Only Human. I'm Tim John. If you were looking for the podcast about HR called We're Only Human, this is not that podcast, but you're going to love it. I know it. I found many times people uh, that are looking for the the HR podcast called We're Only Human are uh, are tagging this podcast on LinkedIn. So um, I got to believe some of you have, have stayed and, and are listening to this show now. So thank you for being here. And um, I hope it's enlightening. Today, we're going to speak with someone who I think this guy was born to make people feel good. Honestly, Jason is someone who is just always a ball of energy, always. I I think he, well, I think he would make a good like game show host. And I don't mean that in like a bad way. Like, like he's someone that'll bring the room together and, and get everyone on their feet and excited. And um, he's just a, a creator at heart too, I think. So, Oh, you know, someone who's an entertainer, a creator, a lively. This is this is my jam. So I'm really excited to to talk with Jason. Um, but as any fellow creator, entertainer would know, we got to make sure it sounds good. So we got to do a sound check. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, yogurt. I recently discovered that I am uh, lactose intolerant. I have a problem with lactose, and so I switched to oat milk. And there was a bus going down the street the other day. And it said, Oatly has a new podcast. And I thought, what the hell does Oatly need a podcast for? But I tell you what, I tuned in and it's spectacular. So I'm all in. Today, I'm joined by Jason Miller. He's a son, father, husband, Marketing director at Creative X by day and rock and roll photographer by night. Sounds like a superhero. <laughs> um, I think, Jason, when I think of my introduction for you, I think you are a creative artist who like truly celebrates life through art. Um, in the time I've known you, you've always wanted to create things that make people happy and sort of bring them joy, um, whether it's for corporate brands or just your own personal um, you strike me as someone who's very proud of and enjoys the art you create. You, you have, in my opinion, a very true desire to create. Like I, I share that with you. I saw this description of you in another podcast, actually, another uh, show notes for another podcast. And I thought this was pretty spot on. The person wrote, if you find yourself lately feeling boring or robotic, Jason provides the pizzazz you need to lead with creativity. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, that's good, right? So... If someone asked me who Jason Miller is, this is what I would say. If someone asked you, who are you, what would you say? Um, you know, I, I, I'm an entertainer, I think. I, I'm an entertainer who fell into a B2B marketing role and made the most out of it. I, that's exactly how I would describe it. Why would you... Uh, entertainer, that, that word, I love that word. Why do you choose the word entertainer? So... You know, I mean, my history, I started off playing in a heavy metal band. I was in a hair metal band uh, back in the day, 17 years old, signed a record deal to a small independent label. And uh, we had super long hair and, um, you know, uh, we were sitting around watching Headbangers Ball one night in our zebra striped spandex. And uh, true story. And Ricky Rackman, the host of the Headbanger Ball, Headbangers Ball came on and he said, hey, uh, everyone, I got a new band I think you're really going to enjoy called Nirvana. Uh and we're like, oh, my God, because it was all Poison and Motley Crue and Cinderella and all this hair metal, right? And that's what we were living and breathing. And so when I saw 
Nirvana come out, we all knew, we saw the right on the wall, and it wiped out the entire genre of hair metal overnight. Um, and grunge was the new thing. So I think I was supposed to be in a hair metal band, a popular hair metal band, but grunge destroyed that. Uh, long story short, so so I, I, I went to work for a record company, uh, my first job, and I've decided I would live vicariously through the artists that I worked for. And this is like the early days of uh, right before the MP3 came out. We had a pretty good run. Uh, but so my, my background is in entertainment. Um, and I would find myself, and I got a million stories about it, right? But uh, long story short, I would find myself in an industry that was fighting technology instead of embracing it. And by the time they decided to to work on some sort of model that made sense, the the, the music industry was no more. So I had to completely reinvent myself. And that's how I got into B2B marketing, B2B marketing. But at no point, Tim, did I ever say, man, I can't wait to become a B2B marketer, you know? So it, but it was, it was that combination. It was that background that I brought into a space that I didn't really know that well. So I just tried to have some fun with it. I brought B2C to B2B and that's, uh, that's how I sort of found success. How, how did you get signed to a record label at 17? It was a small little independent record. I think label is called like, I think it was called Paradigm Records or something. And uh, yeah, we had a little, we had cassette tape out and we had, uh, we had leather jackets with our, our name of our band airbrushed and we had rivals with the other bands, <laughs> you know, and uh, we played some pretty big shows. I mean, uh, we were, we were on a trajectory, I think. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and then grunge, man. And, and I like grunge. So uh, I, I would, I still like to go back to the world of hair metal. I just think it's fun and flamboyant and, you know, it's different. I think that's something else that, you know, uh, I like to look back and have some fun with, you know, the, the, the sheer, sort of outlandishness of hair metal uh you know and then you take that back 10 years before that you have the the outlandishness of punk so i think it's always been that who's the band who's not necessarily the best or the most talented but who's the most fun to watch who's the most energetic who makes you feel good about yourself yeah uh, yeah and i think i think uh if you can take that approach to to something seemingly boring like b2b marketing you know, I think uh, outlandish, something surprising, something different, and and you own it, right? Like I'm not embarrassed to say that I love Cinderella. They're a really good band. <laughs> um, did they look ridiculous? Yeah, but I loved it. It stood out, man. And I think those those are the lessons that I've always sort of brought with me. Wait, okay, wait. I'm still stuck on you as 17 in a rock band, but I'm more curious. You're an entertainer, and so grunge comes along and kind of squashes your dreams in a sense like it was like i'm gonna be in a hair metal band all of a sudden hair metal is not necessarily as popular kurt cobain destroyed this for us what does that feel like when you're you know what what happened then was it like the record labels like hey this is no longer music that sells and we're gonna put the kibosh on this because i'm just thinking if you enjoy making people feel good through your entertainment and then you wake up monday morning your dreams are crushed that's gotta suck well, I think there was a sense of, you know, it was it, at that time at such a young age, I was a rebel. I was, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So I think it more, it wasn't more about, it was actually at that point, it's more about being a rock star, right? And uh, and all the things that come along with that. Um, so there was a little bit of, of, I guess, you know, us wanting to live this fantasy. Um, but, you know, back then you had, the, I mean, as making it, make, making a living, making a living as a musician, even today, I think you have the same odds as, you know, going to Vegas and, and hitting a jackpot. 
but it does happen. Um, and we pushed it as far as we could, but yeah, how did it feel? It, it felt that, you know, we, we, I think everybody, we changed our clothes. We put on some flannel, put on some flannel, you know, we, uh, we cut our hair, we wrote heavier music and, you know, we took the makeup off. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it was, I think I was too young to actually really care. Um, it was just, you know, I wanted to be a rock star and uh, I was going to follow whatever trend and path that uh, took to get there. You know, you said you took the makeup off. Did you have makeup like kiss? No, no, just eyeliner. And we had uh, we had some girls who would uh, who would you know do our makeup for us and tease our hair up and uh, we would borrow their clothes. And I mean, it was silly. Like, I mean, if you look at if you watch something like you know, the dirt from Motley Crue on, on Netflix. Like it's, it's so crazy over the top. Like that's what we were trying to be. We were never anywhere near that, but you know, we had the same clothes and the same makeups and, the, and we wanted to be, we wanted to be that like that. Um, it was just, how far can you push it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that I, I'm trying to picture you as a 17 year old with really long hair. I've never seen you with really long hair. Hey, I'll tell you what, like my mother was a uh, hairdresser. So she had a, a beauty shop downstairs in our house in the Midwest, oh, okay. in St. Louis, a fellow Midwesterner, Tim. So, um, <laughs> and so she's, and, and, and she, uh, she said, if you're going to grow your hair, uh, it's going to look magnificent. So it was down to my, my, down to my waist, like past my waist. And in high school, like you can imagine, I was the outcast in high school. I was, you know, the loser and everybody picked on me. But, uh, but I did win uh, one year, I think it was ninth or 10th grade. I won best hair. I beat out all the females. Um, so I won best hair at my high school. So, was your mom uh, yeah. proud? I mean, uh, was your... very, she was, she was very proud. <laughs> she was, she was very proud. And, uh, you know, it was, but then it was like, then I was like, I felt like, um, Rapunzel. Like then I felt like my hair was my, my magic, you know, that was the only thing I had. And like, I was scared to death that, you know, um, my dad would cut my hair. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was scary. Like, you know, yeah, I think you're always, I was always kind of latching on to some kind of security, uh, you know, in, in the, in the insecure space of growing up in the middle of nowhere, Midwest, you know, was dad not supportive of the long hair? Uh, I mean, he was, he was all right. He was, uh, he was supportive enough i think you know he came to see the band a couple times he's 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 a cool guy he was kind of quiet and he was uh very much like he worked out a lot so, and he looked like bruce willis he was very intimidating but you know um it, it, he uh he he sort of put me on the right path uh when i was going down the wrong path let's just say that sure well, we all need someone like that right to course correct us when necessary 100 percent. how did you get into so you're in the metal band uh, how did you get into photography so, um, so I worked in, um, I worked at Sony for 10 years. And so it was, it was really fun for me because I was, I was an artist development. So I was, uh, I would take the baby bands out, you know, on the first run and take them on, we would take them to the venue. We would take them to the radio station. We'd do all their meet and greets. Sometimes I actually would walk them on stage and, you know, help with the production. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was out with, um, System of a Down, like, early days before they, uh, they, they hit it big, uh, incubus, uh, corn. Um, I mean, you name it. Uh, there was all those metal bands. So I was in heaven. Right. Um, but, but as I mentioned before, I, I, I watched sort of, you know, digital completely destroy it. Um, and there was some really terrible ideas along the way. They just didn't want to grab, they, they didn't, the, the industry didn't want to let up on that stranglehold they had to force you, you know, 20 bucks to buy one song on a CD. 
uh, and iTunes, they were pissed as hell at iTunes. And then Napster came along, gave away for free. Is that a 99 cents? And then that was like, it was like all out war. So, um, so yeah, I, I was in the music business and, uh, when I left the music business, uh, it was very painful. It was very tough for me. The last last record I was working on was uh, the Adele record, funny enough. And I've told the story uh, a few times, but like we couldn't give – it was brilliant. Uh, I love Adele. Who doesn't love Adele? But we couldn't give that record away. Like It was Duffy and it was Amy Winehouse, and here comes Adele, and nobody wanted anything to do with her. Um, but back then, it was it, it was either you know the stars were aligned for radio or the stars were aligned for um, for late-night TV. They really Late-night TV – had this impact, right? And she played a version of Chasing Pavements on Letterman, I think it was. And it was just, everyone, I'm getting chills thinking about this. This performance, the next morning, she was on that tear and she didn't stop and she took over the world. But it was that moment. And it wasn't even supposed to be her. There was another artist <laughs> who uh, who was supposed to be sort of the big one. So it's just funny how that worked. But long story short, um, when I left the music business, I wanted to keep my my ties to the free tickets and free music because that's what I loved. <laughs> of course. So that's I, a, probably the number one perk, right? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And so I, so I started a blog. Oh no, I was actually, this is kind of a funny story. I was writing for this newspaper, this weekly newspaper that was upstairs from the Sony office in Dallas. And uh, they, they came down one day and they said, do you guys want to do any advertising? Like we don't have any money. Like, but you're Sony. Like, we don't have any money. Uh, we're dying and we're bleeding money. And so I said, do you want to write for free? I'm like, yeah. So I started writing reviews of just records that I liked. And uh, I met my wife when I moved to San Francisco. I didn't tell them that I moved from Dallas to San Francisco because I liked writing for them so much. And I got free, free, free stuff. And my wife says to me, she's like, you still writing for that, that weekly newspaper in Dallas? And you live in San Francisco? I'm like, yeah. She goes, well, what do you do with the articles after they go out? I'm like, I don't know. They go in the trash. She goes, why don't you start a blog? And I'm like, are you, from, what are you from the future or something? What kind of wizardry, what kind of sorcery is this? What do you speak of? <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is, I mean, this is, this is probably 2008, maybe 2009. Is that right? Yeah. Anyway, so I started, uh, man, I'm, I'm going down the rabbit hole, but I, I started rockandrollcocktail.com. I can't believe that name wasn't taken. And I just started blogging. Uh, and then I started uh, building, like people started asking me to come review shows. And um, I was having a grand old time. I had no, I'd never picked up a, a, a camera in my entire life uh and one time the uh the press the publicist for motley crew reached out to me and said hey would you like to uh photograph would you like to review the show in san francisco i'm like absolutely they said great we'll leave you a photo pass i'm like i don't even know what that means so they said you can take the photos of the first three songs so that night uh, i went out and i i went to best buy and i bought a nikon d3200 had no idea what it was went to the store and rented a, a massive lens because they made a shoot from the back and I walk in there, never shot with this camera before, never shot with a professional camera. And I'm standing next to, you know, someone from I don't know, Rolling Stone or Span or some pretty big heavy hitters. And, you know, they're looking at me like, who's this? Who's this chump? Um, who's this blogger invading our space? They were very defensive of it, too. Uh, but that blog got me access. That was the whole thing. It got me access. Was it a great blog? No, it's much better now. Uh, but I, I was passionate about it and it got me access. So the whole like don't work for free is kind of BS. Like you work for free to get access. You work for free to build something. So don't ever tell somebody that you or it's a terrible idea to work for free. Uh, if you use that to build something, your network, your access, your, uh, you know, your portfolio, your blog, uh, that whole point after I, Tim, I, I screwed up that opportunity. My photos were so terrible that I felt like I missed an opportunity to capture one of my all-time favorite bands. 
that I vowed that very night, I vowed to master the art of low light, fast moving photography. And 10 years later, I still have it. <laughs> but, but it's one of the most incredibly challenging disciplines of photography. But I, 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 I'm, I'm very happy where I'm at. I think I'm very good. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm at. What is it? What is it about that shooting bands um, in the? Because I've seen some of your photos, and I mean it's action packed. You know, in the air, jumping, or you know, fast moving, truly capturing the moment. What is it about that that just puts that big smile on your face? Is it is it capturing them in their true essence, or is it just like you're trying to stand out from the myriad of other musical photography out there? It's so it's it's incredibly competitive. And right, so with bloggers and and um, you know influencers, the 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 barrier to entry has has dropped significantly. So um, I'm not saying it's super easy to get in, but I'm saying if you get creative, you can probably get in the pit if you need to. Now the the different levels of shows, like Liam Gallagher, is much more difficult than obviously you know uh, this band I'm shooting tomorrow night, which is an up and comer. But what it is is it's capturing a moment of a of a live experience in one single image that can paint the picture and tell the story. That memory, uh, you can instantly go back to it at any time you want. So uh, I take a lot of pictures. I take, I probably take a thousand pictures per band, some five, six, five hundred to a thousand pictures per band. And everyone else is like, "Oh, that's way too many. You're wasteful." Blah. blah. It's like it's digital. It's meant to be wasteful. Um, but my point is, like, I do it because I'm looking for that moment that even I couldn't anticipate. And I capture it uh, all the time with this, right? I, there's a picture of, of this punk rock musician who is in the moment drilling down and just through his hair, you can barely see a peak of a smile to where this guy, and I get chills thinking about this too, like I, and, and I, it took me like 16 photos to get this, but this one picture of him in the moment uh, that no one else got because they weren't looking for it or they weren't trying to capture something they couldn't anticipate. I got it. I shared it with the guy. And he loved it. And he shared it with his Instagram, and it built, you know, got me some new followers. But, but that's like what I love is getting that shot that not even I I know I can get, uh, and it surprised me. Almost like a pack of baseball cards. You get your safe, you get your safe bets. Like I shoot what I need for my blog, and then I go for that one photo. It's the rookie card in the pack that you're tearing open looking for, um, and that's that's what I look for. And 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 the difference between me and other photographers is I only want that one photo. Um, everyone else has like someone this like we shot the same uh, I shot, shot the same show as another friend a, a bunch of friends over here now in, in photography so it's a different world but they posted I don't know 49 pictures from the show and in, and I'll post three or five right um, and if it, it, it I'm looking for that one photo uh, and hopefully it's in that mix of five no more than that you know yeah I like that I like the I'm always a big fan of like less is more like like find the the couple that really stand out and kind of make your mark rather than like posting a thousand of them. But do you um, I'm wondering where you at the beginning you said I'm an entertainer, which I love that word still. I, I really am reflecting on that word. But when did you feel that you were an entertainer? Like when because I feel like as a creator, it's just something that's within you. And wondering, like, at what point, you know, were you like three years old and and at the family dinners, like, you know, singing and dancing and like entertaining everybody, or is this something that you just realized as you got older, like, I like to perform and entertain and make other people happy through this art? I I think it comes from you know, and 
I don't, it's a really, I never really thought about it, but if, if I had to dig deep, I would say that it sort of comes from, I, I hate, I hate attention. I don't like attention. I don't like praise. Um, it, it makes me very, very uncomfortable. Um, but what I do like is if I'm very good at something, I do like inspiring other people by showing them, you know, either how to do it or what's possible. Right. And so I, I think I've taken that approach to sort of how I build marketing teams as well. Like here's, here's a vision of what's possible. Like, um, and I do the same with photography or I do the same with music. So it's, it's, I, I, I don't think it's an attention thing as much as it, as it is, uh, how do I stand out? in a sea of mediocrity um, that is, you know, I think almost everywhere we look, you know, and, and the entertainer thing came to me. I, I was, I was speaking at this event in um, it was this B2B event in Sydney, Australia. And Robert Rose, I think was either before me or after me. Uh, and I love Robert. He's a great friend. We were out like chatting, uh, chatting up before. And I said, Hey man, I got some, I got some new, uh, I got a whole new presentation. I said, I can't wait for you to see it. And after I delivered it, he came over to me and he said, I love the new bits. And to me that he basically said like, like, cause that was parts in there that were funny, but to me that said like, Oh, like he didn't say, I love the presentation. I like the bits. So that meant like I was entertaining, which yeah. is exactly what I like to do. So I found a way to make B2B marketing or pres presentation or presenting uh, entertaining. And I thought that's, that's really something. Um, and so that's kind of stuck with me. Uh, for some reason, but yeah, the entertainer, um, always trying to just make people happy, put on a show and, and show somebody something they might not have seen before. You know, you know and I, I preface this with like, I, I mean this in like a genuine way, but you have an uh, aura about you where like uh, you're a host, like you would be a great game show host or radio host or event host or like you have that sort of energy about you to like get people amped up to get people engaged. Have you ever like had the opportunity to to do hosting in that sort of sense? No, I mean, um, you know, a few things here or there. Uh, but I, I, you know, before before I joined this call, I, I was sort of like I get in these little ruts where if I don't talk to somebody for like over like two hours, I, I start to get a little depressed, you know. Uh, and you almost like, you almost don't want to talk to anybody. And then I, but I know, I know for a fact, every time I, I feel that way, if I get on a call with someone and just chat through them, and this is, I mean, this is a different conversation because I haven't seen you a while and, and I think you're fantastic, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 sometimes it's just convincing yourself, uh, that, you know, you, 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 you need to get out there and have that conversation. But I, I think what I'm trying to get to is I thrive off of that energy of someone else. Right. And I try to take sure. it to a notch and I try to make them feel good about themselves. I try to elevate them. I try to elevate the conversation. I try to have fun. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, like I get into these, these moments and I talk super fast and like, sometimes there's no filter and, and, uh, you know, some things, <laughs> sometimes I put my foot in my mouth, but, uh, it's just an energy. It's, it's like, I get, I'm excited to talk about music and creativity and photography it gives me a, a buzz you know um i like talking to interesting people like yourself uh, i like to see people creating things that you know are new and unique and pulling stories out of people uh i mean i could go on and on and on but there are so many things that sort of give me a a, a buzz um that it's 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 you know i i need that I, but i need i can't get it on my own so it has to be either at a show, you know, 
creating something photography-wise, talking to someone like yourself, talking to my team. You know, um, there's difficult conversations, of course, along the way. But uh, put me in a room, and and I, I wouldn't say I'm a charmer necessarily, but I think I would be an interesting person to uh, to get the conversation started. And that's 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 what I am. I thrive off of other uh, other energies, and that could be either music, people, or um, just getting you know uh, connections in general. Yeah, I totally share that. I'm I'm similar. Like I thrive off other people. Just like what you described about having time go by without conversations. Like I I definitely do you identify as an extrovert mostly then? Because I think about this myself. I'm like. I feel very extroverted, but lately in the past couple of years, I've been more in tune with that small sliver of introvert and recognizing the importance of it within the overall identity. But like, to your point, I need other people around me at some point to give that, absorb that energy off of. Are you, are you straight up extrovert? No, I, I think I'm fine either way. You know, I think I prefer to be an extrovert, but I think, you know, I'm also okay by myself. I think, you know, lockdown showed, I, 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 that's the other thing, lockdown, like being on Zoom calls for eight hours a day at home sucks, sucked the life out of me. I hate it. Uh, I need to be in an office environment, big or small. I need to be in that, I need to have that option. But, you know, uh, Noel Gallagher, there was, there was uh, who, I, who I love, there was a, uh, a documentary during lockdown where Noel would do an interview and then he'd go out and play some songs on the new record. And he said something that stuck with me. And I wrote a whole blog about this and put it in my newsletter. And it was, uh, he said, I do, I'm going to butcher the quote, but he said something to the effect of, I don't think you would meet a creative who had a shit lockdown because everything lives in our head anyway. And I thought, that's really interesting. And, and you know, obviously there are musicians who struggled and the industry, the entertainment industry took a massive hit. I'm not dis discounting that by any means, but I'm also thinking like maybe the creatives did like who, you know, th there was a burst of creativeness that, that came out of musicians and authors and um, bloggers and uh, Instagrammers and streamers. So there's something to be said about, you know, isolating yourself and living in your head to boost or give a different take on creativity, um, or get you out of a rut. So, like I said, I'm either way. Uh, I would prefer to be in a people environment or a, or a venue. I was watching Saxon the other day, sitting in my chair after I shot the show, and I have a beer in my hand and watch the show. And I swear to God, I sat there. I said, I could do this for the next twenty years. <laughs> Just sit here. That's how much I love it. But uh, so I'm, I think either way. I think that I think any good human probably needs a balance of both. I think if you ever heard that phrase like constraint breeds creativity, like the idea that some of the most fruitful creative endeavors will come out of boundaries set forth and like constraints. What you just said about lockdown reminds me of that. Like sometimes some of the best creative arts come from situations where you're restricted and you're forced to like think <laughs> quote unquote outside the box. But um, I wonder if that's part of like where all that from lockdown came from. It's like we were forced to be in the situation that we normally don't create in. Cause I think a lot of us have all the ideas in our head, but we traditionally will use other people to bounce ideas off of or to collaborate with. And, you know, especially in person, physical connection to sort of bring those ideas to life. And, you know, COVID lockdown was the opposite. There's this misconception. Uh, and I talk a lot about this in, in some of my latest presentations and, and, you know, the, the creativity needs this free flowing ideas and needs to like no constraints, but it, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Like the, the most elegant 
ideas come from uh, the most constraints, right? And I think there's there's lots of elements of this. There's a, a great example that I used in my presentation was when Jimmy Fallon uh, put out the call to action to say, uh, describe a movie badly in one tweet, right? And I think um, one of the ones that comes to mind was, uh, it was from um, Castaway. And it was like, man gets new beach bod. Like, and it's like, it, it was like, <laughs> it's, a cons- it's a constraint, right? Or um, there was another one. It was uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Man trips balls waiting for IT support. Like, <laughs> and so, I mean, but that's like, here's the constraint, 140 characters. Here's the other constraint, describe a movie badly. Uh, and then let the world loose and see what comes out of it. Like, it, it's a fun exercise to put on a team, too. Like, give them these unreasonable constraints and see what happens. And you'll you'll most likely be very surprised. Uh, you know, I look look at, there's another example where I talk about The Clash, London Calling, right? They created this, uh, this epic masterpiece up the street here in London. Um, and they were at war with their record label. They wanted to, um, they were recording in um, the guitar player's mom's garage. Like, uh, they were completely broke. Um, and they were trying to create a double album in a world made for single albums and then keep the price point low. So they had all these constraints. And what did they do? I get chills about thinking about this. They rose to the occasion and they gave us one of the most iconic double albums of all time. Rooted in, um, you know, rooted in the streets and the, and the people and the revolution and the times and the social changes that were happening, uh, it, it's a masterpiece. And it was bo- who's to say it would have been if they were in a big flashy studio in Hollywood? There's no way they would have made this album. So I, I think it's interesting, you know, these put these constraints in place because creativity one thousand percent needs them. Yes. Do you ever? I was just thinking about this. You are someone who's so passionate about art and. You're just talking about the other night. You're sitting there at the show with the beer, and you're on. You're out shooting now. All this photography. Do your kids know that dad's a rock and roll photographer? And I'm sure I see the guitar behind you and all the music posters. I'm sure they know your love for music. But I'm just thinking, like for them, it's going to probably be normal for dad to be a rock and roll photographer. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> well, I think you know, Penny. Um... I'm, I'm trying to get Penny. She's seven now. I'm trying to get her into photography. She's, you know, she's a teenager trapped in the seven-year-old's body. Uh, but, but she's, I mean, if I, I got her a nice little Nikon and she takes it out, but she's, uh, she's getting more and more interested. Jackson's got a little, little camera that he carries around. He's three. Um, and he's, he's trying to get into it too. But yeah, I, I don't know if they comprehend. I mean, I, I do catch them on occasion. Like, yeah, I put out uh, the, the concert photography book, the, the coffee table book a few years ago through Kickstarter. And I do see uh, Penny flipping through that sometimes and looking at some of the pictures. And I think she gets it. I don't think, um, I don't think they think it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, she thinks, you know, Penny right now is all into Ariana Grande. And like before she can now, she can now sort of, you know, she's old enough to where she uses Alexa to find songs that she likes, you know? Um, oh, cool. And it used to be me putting songs in front of her. So I started her off like, you know, with some some stuff that I thought she would like, and it was some rock and roll stuff, and you know, ACDC, some Black Sabbath. There's a couple of bands that she loves over here, pop rock bands from the UK. But now she's like on her own, and she finds what she wants, and she's you know she's becoming her own person. So uh, it, it's fun it's fun to watch, uh, but I feel like I, I can't influence it with uh, with voice search <laughs> active in the house. You know, you just can't. It's no longer it's no longer is she gonna find a pile of my records, and you know all of a sudden. 
uh, this world is going to blossom for her where she's like, oh, Led Zeppelin is great. No, she's like, Alexa, put on uh, the Sing 2 soundtrack <laughs> or put on Alicia Keys. And that, that's, that's the new album leaning against the wall that, that, you know, that I grew up with. So That's so true. Just the other day, my daughter said, she always says, she's seven and uh, almost eight, and she always says, when we want to learn something, she says, oh, dad, go look it up. Just this phrase, look it up, which is basically like Google it, right? It's like she understands. And of course, my son, who's 11, like he understands, like we live in this world. They live in this world where anything you want to know is literally available on the phone at your mom or dad or my kids, uh, my son's friends, all the phones now um, at your fingertips. And so it's so funny when she said to me, you know, I don't know what we were talking about. She's like, oh, look it up. And it's like in my head, I'm laughing, but I thought, you know, you're right. We literally, within the next six seconds, could learn whatever it is we want to learn that you just asked me about. Oh, man. And, you know, I worked at a record store in college, um, and this is pre-internet days, right? So uh, we had this thing called uh, the Phonolog, which is this giant book that apparently has every song and every album it, it ever written in it, right? And so, and each week they would, all the new songs that would come out, they would send you the new funnel log pages. You have to go in this big binder and you'd have to, you know, strap them in. And, but the <laughs> book was, the book was like three feet long. And so this is what happened when somebody would come to the record store, you know, pre-internet days. And they would say, I'm looking for this song. And I'm going, oh, shoot, here we go. And you got to flip through this book looking for this song. <laughs> um and, and and that's how you did it, you know. But but I'll never forget the best. I mean, I got a million stories from the record store days too. But there was this guy who came in one day, and he said, uh, "He goes, I'm looking for this song. It's like number one on MTV. It's everywhere. And the guy's name is Earl Smith. And uh, and we're tearing apart the phone along. I'm like Earl Smith. Who the hell is Earl? Why? How is this on MTV? We don't know who it is. I know my music. Like I'm going crazy. Like 45 minutes to an hour, and we finally figured it out. Do you know where this is going, Tim? Not yet. Say the name really fast. Earl Smith. Aerosmith. He was Arrow looking Smith. for Aerosmith. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god. He kept saying Earl Smith. <laughs> Earl Smith. <laughs> And I'm like, there is no one named Earl Smith recording music right now. And it was Aerosmith. And I thought, oh, my God. I will never get that hour of my life back. <laughs> Wait, was this phonolog, you said it was like all the music that existed? Was this this record store created this? Or this was like a publication that was published and every record store had a copy? This was a subscription service. Uh, oh. And you, if you were like, you know, if you worked in a record store... If you didn't have the photo log, you're flying blind, man. And like, <laughs> unless you're like, this is a mall record store, right? If you go to like a, a independent store in, in 1997, there's going to be a dude who's been working there for 30 years who is a human photo log, right? He's going to know everything. But for the, for the other ones, uh, but I'll tell you what, I, I know, I know so much about music. I know, uh, I know everything that can be known about any, any album or song that was popular between 1996 or 1995 and 2000 anything that's wait 95 and 2000 yeah there was the uh there was the titanic um soundtrack that came out where we you had to buy the entire soundtrack for which was all score except for one song which was my heart Go on. <laughs> it was tim it was 1899 it was 2036 with tax it's ingrained in my head i remember uh, 
Yeah, $18 sticks out as like what most CDs were back then. I remember going to Walmart. Um, my parent, my mom did not want us getting the explicit version. So Walmart always had the clean version of the of the albums. And so you would go and there'd be the explicit and the clean val- the clean version. But um, do you remember uh, Blockbuster Music? I don't know how... There was one across the street from my high school. I don't know how widespread Blockbuster did these music stores. So I don't oh, know I if they were... Blockbuster in- Music, yeah. Okay, they were deal. in St. Louis? Okay. Yeah. And... I mean, you must have loved, I guess it's it's just a record store, but like Blockbuster Music, for someone who grew up in the suburbs of Chicago and did not, I don't know if there were record stores or if I just didn't know about them, having a Blockbuster Music across the street from high school, literally, you know, walk out at lunch, cross the crosswalk and go to Blockbuster Music and check out the used CDs. That was amazing. For you, a Blockbuster Music must have also been like a, a heaven well, I mean, we had we had some very strong uh, uh, um, independent chains like Streetside Records, okay. where I worked at for a while. And this is pre UCD too, man. There was no such thing as a UCD. Like, like that was that came later. Like, <laughs> I was like, it was like if you wanted that song, eighteen ninety nine, <laughs> and I'll sell you a blank tape for ninety nine cents too. Uh, that was the add on sale we used to do all the time. You uh, why why a blank tape so you could record your own off the radio. Um, well, it was just like an add-on. So you would come up with your CD and like, hi, would you like a, a Maxell blank tape for 99 cents today? <laughs> did, anyone, did anyone say yes? Oh, all the time, man. <laughs> 99 cents for a Maxell? Three, it was three for $1.99, Tim. Who can't pass that up? But I'll tell you another, one, one, one more funny story. When we worked at Sony, um, when we were trying to <laughs> – I know I'm jumping around, but this is really fun. We had this vendor uh, of this big retail chain in Texas – what the hell were they called? I think they were called Hastings. Um, I think that's what it was called. Anyway, they were a massive chain all across Texas and I think in Arizona. And we were trying to clear out. It was the last run of cassettes. Cassettes were still going in like 2000. Jeez, in probably 2002, 2001, 2002. And so we ran a promotion with them. Uh, we cut them a deal. We sold them all these Bruce Springsteen, Leonard Cohen, Miles Davis tapes. And they ran a promotion. It was um, three ninety nine. <laughs> oh, it was three ninety nine each. Or three for 12. <laughs> <laughs> and we told it because we would make all the signs for them, the signage, and ship it to their stores. And I'm like, are you sure you want to do that? And they go, yes, don't question our pricing policies. <laughs> I'm going, all right. So we had to make like a thousand of these signs. <laughs> it was three ninety nine or three for 12. Like, I don't know if they had some sort of psychological knowledge that we didn't about uh, purchase behaviors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really it was curious. bizarre. I'd be very curious to see what the results of that were because I will say when you say that out loud, three ninety nine each or three for twelve, I don't know why, but in my head the three for twelve sounds like a smoother phrase. Like this sounds really <laughs> weird, but three ninety nine sounds very clunky to me, and three for twelve sounds very smooth. And I just want to be like, yeah, I'll take three for twelve. It just sounds easy. Uh, we never, I never um, got the uh, results from the sale, but uh, maybe you know for another time. <laughs> You you mentioned earlier, so you you were in artist and development, or, or in artist development in in the music industry for Sony. Uh, is that what was that? When what you call A and R, or is A and R separate? A and R would sign the bands, and they would give them to us, and we would basically do everything we could from a guerrilla level to get them up to a certain level. So there was like this, they, like when you signed a deal with Columbia with Sony Music, which owned Columbia Records and Epic Records. What happened if you're a rock band? Um, what they would do is they would give you this, we call it the, the, the white van. They give you a white van uh, and they'd give you like, you know, um, a grand a week and they just put you on tour. And the, every band that signed to the label did this. And you either ran that 
bus into the ground or ran that van into the ground touring around the country um, until you either ran out of places to play, uh, ran out of radio support, or ran out of money. Um, and if you didn't get a radio single or an MTV single or somebody picking up something, there was no Twitter or YouTube back then. If somebody didn't pick up on it, a radio station preferably, then you went back home and you owe the record label a, a ton of money. You hung up <laughs> and you lost your records and your recordings. So yeah, it was it was a mess. I'd say eight eight or nine times out of ten, easily, uh, the bands you know never made it. And I've I've been out on tour with some bands who I'm watching going. This is probably this is the next big thing. I have no doubt. This is one of the greatest artists I've ever seen in my life. Only to see a couple of years you know a year later them to be completely forgotten gone never got a shot did you feel all the time when, when you were at sony and, and developing these bands i got i gotta imagine there's some f- sense of investment of personal sort of like i'm responsible for their success did you feel that at all or did you like you said eight nine times out of ten it's gonna fail so i know this is just a numbers game well i i was kind of stuck in the middle because in st louis i was the only rep there um, and even in Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world, I was there for six years. So uh, I was I was the you know point of contact for every band that came through there. So yeah, it became sort of I was the liaison. I knew whether or not I pretty much had a, a very good sense of whether or not that band was going to make it or not based on the meetings I had you know with with uh, my boss and whatnot. And you know I also had I had artists tell me straight up we'd be out having a beer after the show and they'd be like, "Look, man, this is a true story." Like. I poured my heart and soul into this next record. If it doesn't hit, uh, not only do I not get my record back because they own the the rights to the recording, but I'm done. My career is over and I got to go get a day job. This happened all the time. I had bands that were on tour with a number one single ask me if they could get an extra hundred bucks a week because they couldn't afford to eat. Um, I mean, it was, it was bizarre, but you know, on the flip side of that, I will say, you know, I saw, some amazing bands, System of a Down being one of them. True story. Uh, they they had multiple offers from different record labels, and one record label I can't, I won't name. It, I don't want to shit talk to anybody, but basically um, was signing, was getting ready to sign their deal. Invited all these people into the office, having this big party, and no one was even talking to the band, and they thought it was just a whole, you know, whole big show. So they got up and walked across the street and signed a deal with Columbia. <laughs> but you know, I did see I did see some amazing stuff. I saw John Mayer, you know, go from completely unknown to uh, you know an amazing one of the most amazing you know guitar players, singer songwriters on the planet. So System of Down, uh, Incubus, like one story about Incubus. I love Incubus. They their first record was very metal, but I remember being at the Sony Music Office for our meetings. Well, they brought in all the teams from across the country, and the guy, uh, the A and R guy who signed Incubus, he said, I, I, "I get chills thinking about this too." Like, he said, "We have this new record from Incubus, and we think it's one of the best records this in the in the in the history of this label." That he said, "They have outdone themselves. Uh, this is such a stunning record, and we're going to play it for you first. And we heard it, and we're like, "Wow!" And so, so you know, there were moments of, oh, sorry about that. It's all good. There were there were moments of of you know where I felt bad because you know some of my favorite artists never got a shot. Some of the brilliant artists in the world never got a shot. I never got a fair shot. Um, but then you know we saw these these moments of magic where artists really came into their own and the muscle of the industry 
and the muscle of the label did did work. It worked, you know. Did you um the incubus system of down? Like I'm thinking, did you notice a difference between these bands between those early days when you first saw them and their I mean their birth basically or the very beginning until you know over that trajectory? Like, did you see a difference in like who they seemed to be, or were they always like the same? The people you remember, you know, just after signing and helping develop and that kind of thing. You know, it, it's interesting because I'd only, see, you know, some of the bands I'd only see, you know, once or twice a year. Um, if they were really on a on a tear, you know, it'd be much more often. But you know, I became pretty good friends with the guys from System of Down. We'd play uh, pool together and hang out, and even the guys from Slayer. Um, but yeah, I think you saw you saw a really hungry band like go out there and just destroy the club, man, and just kill it. And then you started to see them start to get a little bit more mature. So I think you saw it every time. The first record was always much harder. Uh, the second record was the sophomore Jinx. They tried to refine themselves a little bit better. To And I think it was an attempt by the label to kind of groom them into more of, more of an appeal to a, a wider audience. That didn't necessarily always pan out. And then you get the classic, oh, well, you know, this band went back to their roots or true to back to their true form yeah. or whatever and that just means that either they try to produce the record themselves too early or they tried to do something that their audience didn't want but yeah I, I, it's interesting there's there's another great story <clears throat> that uh i haven't told in a while where i we were out on tour it was um in columbia missouri it was slayer mudvane and uh it might have been system of down i don't remember but it was definitely mudvane and slayer and one other band and i remember i was outside waiting for carrie king the guitar player from Slayer, who is one of the coolest, nicest guys you ever meet, but he's very angry looking and intimidating. And I remember um, some drunk guy, I'm, I'm standing there waiting for Carrie to come off the bus so we can take him into the venue. And some drunk guy comes over and he starts messing with me. And he kind of shoves me against the bus, just him, like some drunk, you know, jerk. And he's getting ready to just beat the shit out of me. And <laughs> I said, hey, man. I said, I'm waiting for Slayer to get off this bus. He says, oh, yeah, right. And sure enough, it was like, it was like a John Hughes film or something. Okay, the door slams open. Carrie King comes stepping down. He's like, yo, man, what are you doing to my bus? <laughs> <laughs> and this is Carrie King, man. Like He's, you know, he's just he's just an angry-looking dude, man. Uh, and this guy's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. He <laughs> took off running. But it was like one of those moments where I'm like, Oh man, like that's that's like the coolest thing it's ever happened to me. <laughs> but you know, like I think you know, for me, as I was not only I didn't work there because I I wanted to work in the music business as much as I was a fan. So so I grew up on Slayer, man. The fact that Carrie King saved me from getting my butt kicked one day, uh, and the fact that you know I saw them live half a dozen times, you know, every single year. Those are the things, man. Like. Um, yeah, it's getting getting close to your artists, getting close to your heroes, uh, and then seeing them do something heroic. That that's a rare, rare thing, you know. Yeah, a thought a thought just popped in my head. You to me strike me as you are someone who does what you do and creates what you create truly for the love of the game. Like you are someone. Would you would you agree with that? Like I, I could just feel it from you. Like you do this because you would be doing this no matter what. Like this is your calling. I can't stop creating. I have, uh, at any given time, I have six or seven projects working. There's there's a quote from Dave Grohl where I read there, he doesn't like to sleep. I don't like to sleep either. Tim, every single night, I will keep my eyes open. I will I will keep push hold my eyes open until one or two o'clock in the morning just to get, just to keep doing something creative. 
and then I wake up at 6 a.m. every day. I don't like to sleep. I hate sleeping. My wife loves to sleep. I hate it. I feel like it's taking away from my time to do something interesting or creative. Um, but yeah, I have so many cool projects <laughs> happening um, that came out of lockdown. And uh, yeah, it, it's... It, the other piece to that is, and, and uh, you know, I think, I, I would like to think that I know what's interesting uh, as a marketer, as a music fan. So I'd like to think that I can look at something and say, that's boring. Uh, or that's like that's mediocre. That's mediocre. Or that's not good enough. Or it's not interesting. Or it's not a sh it's like. Or it's just generic. So I'd like to think that by being a little bit selfish with creating something that I know I would like, uh, that it also hits a level of what other people expect good to look like. You know, and and I think if someone asked me like, "What's your marketing superpower?" I'm like, I think I can. I think I can tell what's relevant and what's interesting in a in a sea of crap <laughs> and and then i can elevate it further you know i can take that and push it so i think that's that's sort of how i think about things i your what you said about um sleep and sort of it taking time away from all the creativity you have i've i'm i don't i used to feel like that i think now i actually treasure having a good amount of sleep and just resting and refreshing myself but i kind of related like i do often feel like every moment of the day or at least the moments that i don't have already allocated to other things family friends work whatever that i do have to like sort of be productive or creative or like somehow creating or contributing to the you know to the ether around me is that yeah. what you feel too like you you feel like i have a limited amount of time you know kind of existentially here and i need to be truly making the most of it uh, I mean, I don't think about it that I try not to think about it that deep because then it's just depressing, right? So I realize my life is probably fifty percent over, <laughs> um, and and you know sometimes I think I wasted a decade of it in a music business, you know, watching this that, that had no future. But then I look back and I think all those experiences, you know, along the way, even though I didn't think I was learning anything um, applicable to digital marketing, which I was focused on, uh, those experiences shaped like who I am and the way that I tell stories. And all these rock and roll analogies became very interesting sort of ways to remember me and remember the stories. Like, uh, you know, talking about market automation at Marketo in the early days of B2B and taking very sophisticated revenue cycle analytics models and, and using a Black Sabbath or Spinal Tap analogy to make it memorable and fun and easy to learn. That was sort of how I, how I got through that whole period and becoming smarter. So, yeah, I think it's... Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's. <laughs> I think I think I'm I'm going down that rabbit hole again of uh, of of how I think way too much, overthink things. You know. No, oh, I think we all do, <laughs> or at least I do. <laughs> well, Jason, thank you so much for for chatting. Like this is so much fun, and um, congrats on the new house. That's exciting. I hope you. And no one can see, but you always have the most elaborate uh, music concert posters up behind you. And you know what I love is like in the, your old place too. The way when I would get video calls with you, you just, or at least in my opinion, you do such a good job of sort of showcasing that creativity and that fun side. The fun side. I feel like you are the fun side, but all of that behind you. So I feel like whenever someone gets to connect with you virtually now, they they truly get to feel that that energy you exude. So thank you. 
for yeah, it. Yeah, you know, I, I try to immerse myself in things, in, in, in the things that I create and the things that I love, you know, and, and I don't know if you can see back there, but I just got a, um, a very rare Dungeons and Dragons uh, uh, starter kit from like 1987. That oh, I wow. went on eBay. I was battling it out, but I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm going nostalgic. Like during lockdown, I find out I found myself going back and not only rereading the books who uh, you know the, made me who I am today, and uh, the books that uh, that inspired me um, in the early days of my marketing career, but I went back and found the things that inspired me um, when I was a teenager that I forgot about, and you know heavy metal, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I oh look at this, I even. I've got some Rubik's uh, products here. So uh, my, my mission my mission this weekend, I'm going to solve the Rubik's Cube for the first time. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to do it until I figure it out. I've never solved Rubik's Cube, but for some reason it came up the other day and I said, I got to check this off my list. So um, a little bit of a detour. Well, good luck with I've never solved a Rubik's Cube either. Granted, I've never sat down and actually tried. So I'm interested to hear how that goes because... Are you the type of person that over, let's say, it takes you two and a half hours and you're still not done? Are you going to get frustrated, or because I feel like I might get frustrated at some point? I will. I will get frustrated, but I will persevere. I nice. Will this one time, and then I want to give it to my kids too. Like, but I'm, I want to get it. <laughs> if if my kids are are geniuses with Rubik's cubes, I need to figure that out because there's. Um, so much more that I don't know about these. Yeah. <laughs> and there's opportunity. I mean, there's these speed, um, speed. Was it called speed cubing? Like you, you, you can do it in like I don't know. Was it thirty seconds? I don't remember what the record is. But I mean, these people are are solving it in I think under sixty seconds. Uh, I think like I think fifteen seconds was the uh, the latest one. But like like that's my point. It's like if I if if I can't figure it out in a couple of hours, and someone can do it in fifteen seconds. I got to know what the problem is. There's something wrong with me, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> There's some disconnect there. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I don't want to go down that. But yeah, that, that's my challenge for this coming week is solving the Rubik's Cube. I'll keep you posted. Yes, please do. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining me. I really appreciate it. And and Tim, thank you for having me. You know, I, I always thought uh, you were such a great storyteller and a creator in your own sense. I mean, the videos that you make and uh, the effort and detail you put into them and uh, how you, you bring your sense of humor uh, it's you're a rare creator, Tim. Uh, I mean that I truly do. I think you do some exceptional storytelling. Um, so just wanted to let you know. Well, thank you. In I case really... I haven't said it before. No, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. You can find all episodes of We're Only Human at We're Only Human Podcast.com on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>